All right, we are titling this sermon this morning, The Greatest Miracle. It's the greatest because it's the most long-lasting, endurable, and eternal miracle, and it's available for every human being, and I hope you've experienced the greatest miracle. So this morning's text in Acts is a, it's a really beautiful story. In Acts chapter 16, it's, a, it's, a, it's just all wonderful. There's not a bad note here at all, nothing negative. So we're going to see God's grace on display. And this is also a really good example of how Luke weaves theological ideas into stories that he's telling, these histories that he's telling. So you have, you know, you have to be careful in drawing theological conclusions from stories, uh, narrative portions of the Bible. People mistakenly think that just because something happened in the Bible, it should happen to them, and people um, take a lot of wrong things from narrative sections and try to apply them broadly. And uh, it's just poor reading to do that. You have to be careful. Generally speaking, doctrine is drawn from the teaching portions of the Bible, like the New Testament letters. Now, a narrative can include teaching portions, a sermon or a statement from someone with authority, like the Lord Jesus or one of the apostles. And sometimes, sometimes the writer, like Luke, in this particular case, uses his authority as a prophet, as a writer of scripture, to make a doctrinal point in the middle of the story. In other words, he goes outside the story for a moment to say some great truth that is applicable for us all all the time. So that's what he does in today's delightful story of the first person to embrace the gospel in Europe. So he does it um, in describing salvation and in language, his language gives weight to the issue of just how gracious saving grace really is and how we need it. We need grace to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But first, I I just want to kind of set the scene again in case you haven't been with us and, and then we'll tell this wonderful story. So today in the book of Acts, we arrive at Philippi. That's the first city in Europe to receive the gospel. The first church in Europe will be planted at Philippi. And last week we talked about the unique way God kept the mission team uh, led by Paul and Silas from going anywhere but to the western coast of Asia Minor. They end up at the edge of the Aegean Sea at Troas, which is a port city there where ships go from. And there the Lord gave Paul a a very dramatic vision. You'll remember it's called the Macedonian call. He sees a Macedonian man pleading for them to come and help him and his people. His people need Christ. So the missionary team correctly understands this to be God's leading. And right away they make arrangements and they take a ship to Neapolis. And from there they travel. In, Neapolis is on the coast of Macedonia. And then they go in about 10 miles to the city of Philippi. Philippi obviously bears the name of Alexander the Great's father, Philip. Philip of Macedon, and he conquered the city, and then he named it after himself. He was a wonderfully humble, humble man, (laughs) not. Philip was a very strong king, and he essentially took over all of Greece by developing a whole new military system, a new strategy that nobody could stand against, and that's the same strategy that Alexander took and conquered the world all the way to Persia. In Paul's day, Philippi was a Macedonian city, But the Romans had made it into a a very Roman city. 
And Roman colonies, we've talked about before, were set up in each province of the Roman Empire. They were cities that were populated mainly by Romans. So there would always be, in every province throughout the empire, a a center of loyalty, which would be Rome's eyes and ears uh, in that area, as well as a place of security, which if anything, there was ever rebellion or anything like that, the Romans in the province could flee there for safety and know that they were going to be in a loyal place. So a colony... A colony was kind of a mini Rome um, in population and in custom and in law as well. So Philippi was made a Roman colony in 42 BC by Octavian, who was going to become Caesar Augustus, the the Caesar of most of the New Testament time, the the life of Christ. So Luke actually calls it that in verse 12. It's a Roman colony. And when Octavian and Mark Antony soundly defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius, who were two of the assassins of Julius Caesar, uh, the veterans in their army, in, in Octavian and Mark Antony's army, were settled there in Philippi after he defeated, um, after those guys were defeated. So, uh, and that made it a Roman colony. Octavian declared it to be a Roman colony. And then in 31 BC, a few years later, he and uh, Mark Antony had a big falling out. And so Octavian went to war with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and he won that war as well. So after Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated, he took veterans from that army and settled many of them in Philippi. So Philippi kind of got a double dose of, uh, of Italians moving in and um, being a loyal Roman city in a, as a royal Roman colony. They also had, uh, Roman colonies had the benefit of being tax-free, so it was a great encouragement to be there. They didn't have to pay taxes to the empire. So uh, we've talked about Paul's missions strategy. Cities and synagogues, right? Cities and synagogues. And Philippi was the center of the Roman presence in Macedonia. It's a significant city. It's on a major roadway. So Paul would plant churches in major cities along the great Roman roads where the gospel and could keep going out from there to the next major cities. And, and what else would he do? He would always start preaching in synagogues. So that's the cities and synagogues strategy that he had. And in those synagogues, there were almost always Gentiles who seemed to be a little bit more responsive to the gospel than many of the Jews. But Paul did not shy away from Roman colonies in doing this um, strategy. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, the first city on the mainland in Asia Minor that they stopped to preach in after they left Cyprus and they went north and landed on the shores of Asia Minor, then they went deep into the country. And the first city they went to was Pisidian Antioch, and that was a Roman colony as well, founded by Octavian also in Galatia. So the missionaries had a good response to their preaching there. But if you remember in Pisidian Antioch, the Jewish community really stirred up all kinds of trouble against them and made it very difficult for them. And they actually sort of had to take off. So, but now Paul's in Europe and he ha- he's at another strategically important city. So what's the first thing he's going to do when he comes to this Roman colony, this first city that he's going to preach in in Europe, what does he usually do? Well, he goes to the synagogue. But he doesn't do it at Philippi. And the reason, 99% sure, is that Philippi simply didn't have a synagogue. Um, This place was so Roman, it didn't have 10 Jewish men, which the Jewish tradition required to form a synagogue. It didn't have that many Jewish men in the city. So there wasn't one there apparently. There was, however, an unofficial place outside the city gate 
where a few Jews and God-fearers, Gentiles who worship the God of Israel, uh, would meet, and that was down by a small river that runs just a little bit outside the city there. Paul probably came to the city and made inquiry about whether there was a group like that when he learned there was no synagogue and was told that one did meet down by the river on Jewish Sabbaths every Saturday. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke go there and they share the gospel. So let's read verse 13 together. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So it appears that all they find there are women. There's, uh, and again, if you don't have a sufficient quorum of men to make a synagogue, then it's, you're, you're not supposed to, in Jewish tradition, read scripture or preach or anything like that. So they just come down there for prayer, and there's only women there. It's possible, historically, we don't know for sure, it's possible that the Jews were kicked out of Philippi uh, right about the time Paul was there or just before that. In AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And it may be that in some of the many Romes, these Roman colonies, they followed that imperial edict and also kicked the Jews out of their, um, out of their city. It's possible. We don't have a direct record of that, but that might be why there's no men there. And it could be that the ladies there, there might be some Jewish ladies here in this group, but they might all be God-fearers. So Paulus and Philippi right around AD 50, so the date really fits that um, idea. So it's very possible that's what happened. But for whatever reason, some women, Gentiles and maybe some Jewish women, are still meeting for prayer, even though there's no synagogue to go to. So the missionaries don't exactly preach to them. They don't proclaim a sermon to them, but they do share the gospel with them. In fact, the word preach is not used here by Luke. The word Luke chooses is speaking, which suggests something simpler, more like a gospel conversation and sharing Jesus that way. So we aren't told how many uh, were Jewish and how many were God-fearers amongst these women, but the one who responds is a Gentile woman of some means, and her name is Lydia. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, that's how you know she was a Gentile, she was a worshiper of God, God-fearer they called them, was listening. So Lydia's a very interesting lady. She's a Gentile who worships the true God. She's not local. She's from Thyatira. Well, Thyatira is where Paul came from, uh, Asia Minor, you know, in modern-day Turkey. So actually, the area she is from, uh, Thyatira is in a province called Lydia, so it could be that Lydia is not her name, but be, when she moved to Philippi, people just started calling her Lydia or the Lydia lady or whatever. And that kind of stuck. That's possible. Or she could have been named after the province she was from. You, we don't know. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. She's a, she's a businesswoman. She has a lucrative business. Selling purple fabrics is like the thing to do if you want to make money because they were extremely, it's extremely expensive to make purple fabric and it's ex and so they sell for a lot of money so only the very rich and the highest and most noble people could wear purple that was the senatorial class and the very upper class roman people that could uh, that wore purple it wasn't your average person could ev ever afford that anything made with that kind of dye and it's a long process and extremely expensive to make that kind of dye so uh, so she's got some bucks as they say um, there's no mention of a husband, so she's 
probably single. Uh, she might be a widow. We don't know. And what happens, what happens when she hears Paul? What happens to her? And, and other people that listen. Well, a miracle happens to her. It's the greatest miracle, and that's in verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That is the greatest miracle that God does by far. The opening of the heart to receive God's word is a miracle of grace. You know, the Bible clearly says that we're saved by grace. And I want to talk about that a little bit and get deeper into this whole subject here. Ephesians chapter 2, very famous passage, verse 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So your salvation, my salvation, is all of grace. It's a gift, and it's not from us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, another famous passage. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So salvation um, is a gift, right? Salvation is also a work of the Spirit of God. That's what makes this change start to happen, this opening of the heart. Titus chapter 2, verse 4, another famous grace verse in the New Testament. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a rich passage. Titus chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. Go back through that later. And look at all the detail there. It's incredible. So he saved us. He saved us according to his mercy. Not by anything that we've done. And it was done. The salvation comes to us by regeneration. And there Paul says that God's mercy is seen. In the washing of regeneration. And the renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit Paul Paul says, was poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ. So the washing of regeneration is what the Spirit does. Well, what is that exactly? What is the washing of regeneration? Well, if you go back to John chapter 3, when Jesus sat down with Nicodemus, Jesus actually called it being born of the Spirit. So regeneration is this new birth. And Jesus told him, he said, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So regeneration, being born of the spirit, the new birth, those are all ideas that come straight out of scripture with regard to this idea of regeneration. So Nicodemus should have known what being born again meant, Jesus said, because it was so clear in the Old Testament. A teacher of the law should understand what regeneration is all about. So here's the great promise of the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. These are God's words to Israel and Jeremiah 31 is the famous chapter, another famous passage where the new covenant is promised to Israel and it's promised to Israel right before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Jeremiah 31, 33. This covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. This is the covenant. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You know the Jews were so sinful, so disobedient though God had given them so much. In fact right before that passage God talks about he was a husband to them and did everything he could for them. So um, their story is really just human nature encapsulated in one people's story. Ingratitude and rebellion. That is the nature of humanity. That's the human heart with regard to the living God. We are ungrateful and we are rebellious. We sin. So the old covenant was obey these commandments and you will be blessed. Disobey them and you will be cursed. And they didn't obey them. They really couldn't do it on their own. And God knew that of course. But that's how fallen humanity is. All of that history of Israel is meant to show us how fallen we are. How unable we are to do what's righteous in and of ourselves. So the new covenant promise is I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God acting on the human heart makes people his people. And those people have a true relationship with the living God. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. So the law on the heart means the heart is being changed to love God and to receive God's word fully with joy to actually take it in. Now another prophet Ezekiel who is a contemporary of Jeremiah although he lived in a different place, has a, he, he has a similarly wonderful promise. This is from Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. God is speaking. I will sprink, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Does that sound a little bit like Titus there? The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. So it's a little bit different language than Jeremiah but it's describing exactly the same miracle. He describes a radical internal transformation, a new heart and a new spirit within you, he says. So who's doing that? Well, God is doing it all through those passages. I will do this, I will do that all through there. He has to be the one that does it because fallen man doesn't have the capacity to know the true God without this new heart. We have to have that. We won't hear God with a stone heart. Mankind can't respond in a God-centered way with a stone heart. We need a new heart And that's why religion just doesn't help. It doesn't help to be a religious person. Religion can't remove a stone heart. It has no power. Religion is, a, religion is actually a key foundation in man departing from God. We make up our own God. We follow our own way. Religion is man making a substitute for God. We cannot change our nature so we invent gods to match our nature. Our, our basic predisposition is against the true God. So unless he does something, we're going to be worshiping a false God that we make up. Our own God or somebody else told us about some false God. But everything we can't do, everything we can't do, God does by his mercy in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So true transformation comes from the washing of the spirit, the new birth, the removal of the heart of stone and replacing it with a soft, pliable heart. God does that. That's the great miracle. And that internal internal miracle makes obeying God sweet to us. It becomes something we want to do. He goes on in Ezekiel chapter 36 right after that passage I read in verse 27 he says I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my commandments. See he does he puts his spirit in us now we're careful to observe his commandments. We actually want to. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Of course he's talking about the millennium when Christ returns and, and blesses the Jews and calls them to himself and um, they're going to live in the land as, as was promised and is promised in so many places in the Old Testament. So that word, that word regeneration is one of the most important theological words in the whole Bible. Personally I think the doctrines of salvation all are around that word. That's sort of the key idea. If you want to talk about justification, sanctification, adoption, all those things, regeneration is really at the heart of all of those things. Without this awakening, we can't receive the gospel or appreciate Jesus' sacrifice or love him like he deserves to be loved. We can't be right with God, justified, unless we accept the gospel. And we won't accept the gospel unless God does to us what he did to Lydia and opens our hearts. See how profound that theological idea is that Luke inserts into her story? Regeneration is literally the impartation of life to a spiritually dead person. Ephesians chapter two, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's right. You know, um, one thing I love about the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a famous American creed, and it also the, happens to be the foundation of our doctrinal statement at Acton Faith Bible Church. It's a creed that comes from, uh, um, it's one of the few American creeds that's sort of in the super high class of the great creeds of Christendom. It's one of the few American ones to reach that status, and uh, we adopted that as the basis for our doctrinal statement. We've added a little bit to it to update some certain things. But, It has a major and proper emphasis on regeneration. In fact, one of the sections in the New Hampshire Baptist Confession is on regeneration. It's called Of Grace in Regeneration. I'm going to read it for you. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind that it is effected in a manner above our comprehension, we don't know where it comes from, how it comes to us, by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth. So the Holy Spirit takes divine truth and opens us up to it. Exactly what happened to Lydia, exactly. So as, and this is what the purpose of it, to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith, and newness of life. It's a great statement. It really is beautiful. And it's so accurate. So precise. That is a perfect description. Of what happened to Lydia. A woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God. Was listening. And the Lord opened her heart. To respond to the things spoken. By Paul. So in the words of the confession there. The Lord secured her. Voluntary obedience to the gospel by opening her heart. 
So Luke puts that in here in her story so we will know that any time in this history that he's telling when he records that someone believes or professes faith in Christ we will know theologically that what is actually happening there is that the Lord is opening that person's hearts as well. We're going to see in the next passage next week in um, Acts chapter 16 another person that comes to put their faith in Christ doesn't say the Lord opened their heart but he did because we, we're seeing here how it actually happens when a person does believe. So um, that's really the only reason uh, to let us see this event here with spiritual eyes if you will to see God's part in it. That's why Luke includes it here. Some people some people um, theologically I think they misunderstand regeneration and sometimes you'll hear people say that or talk as though regeneration is a reward for faith like you put your faith and then God makes you born again. Uh, we believe and then God regenerates us. We believe and then we are born again. But all of these texts I've shared with you this morning and notably Luke's very carefully worded description of, Levi- of Lydia's faith, they suggest otherwise. Regeneration does not follow our faith. It is actually the springboard of our faith. That's where it comes from. This act of God in opening our heart. Somebody really aptly compared it to opening your eyes. That's something we do when we wake up, right? Or if we're walking around and we have our eyes closed, we open them. And what happens when we open our eyes? Immediately light streams in. So opening the heart is like that. It's you're opening your spiritual sense. And right away, you see Christ. I get it. He's wonderful. He's my savior. He died for my sins. I accept him. That's, that's what it's like. You know, you know if you're ever been at, like it's your birthday or something like that and they blindfold you or they sell you, they say, close your eyes and then they lead you someplace you know in the house or whatever like that and they've got a present there and you're trying not to peek right you know you got your eyes closed and as soon as you open it whoa there it is or maybe some long uh an acquaintance you haven't seen for a long long time is there in the room or maybe a number of people that you haven't seen for a while and they show up at this special event and you open your eyes and immediately you perceive that they're there and it's a joyful thing that's kind of what regeneration is it it's it opens the heart to grasp and see jesus and his salvation and how wonderful it is. So we just run to it, we grasp it, just like having our eyes opened in life. So I shouldn't leave out the final line of the doctrinal statement um, where it speaks of the evidence of regeneration. Let's talk about that. Its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Now that, of course, is a process, right? If you are born again, If you're born again, you are a spiritual baby. You're starting off as a baby. And some babies grow faster than others, but all of us take time to grow. So some of us have a lot of things we have to work through in our life, and and growth can be a real challenge in your spiritual life. But it will come, that transformation will come if our spiritual heart, our spiritual eyes have been opened. We can't escape. See, as soon as they're open, we can't escape our Savior. He's there. And God holds him before us so that we think about him and we care for him and we want to be obedient to him. We want to glorify him. A person who is born again has a new heart and wants to follow Jesus. That's, that's what it is. A person who shows no newness of life, no interest in Christ, even if they profess some kind of faith in him, they're just religious people. They're not spiritually renewed. They're not washed. They're not regenerated. But Lydia, Lydia, a worshiper of the true God and an accomplished woman, 
she bears fruit in the simplest way a woman of means could do in those days and she's got about 10 minutes to do it I mean she's a brand new Christian what what can I do what can I do to serve well she hasn't grown in her faith or anything like that but verse 15 when she and her household had been baptized down by that river there she urged us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord come into my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. You've got to. Don't say no. You've got to come. You've got to come. You guys can stay in my house while you're in Philippi. Because she's got a big house. She's a rich woman. So there it is. Now obviously a lot happens here that hasn't been recorded. Suddenly her whole household's been baptized. Those are probably her servants. They may have even been with her down by the river when Paul came. But obviously at some point the missionaries preached to her whole household. And again in her situation if she doesn't have a husband. If she's older and a successful businesswoman. She probably doesn't have small children. But uh, her household would be her servants. She could have three or four servants. She could have a dozen servants. She could have more than that. But all of them respond to the gospel, which means all of them had their heart open and they were all baptized. So Lydia, upon having her heart opened, is ready for baptism. The first thing she can think of then is hospitality, to offer her home while they're, while they're there in Philippi. And that's how she begins her Christian life. And that's how the church and Philippi begins. It's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day. It's a great story and so insightful and so helpful for us to understand our own salvation. Now, what I'd like to do is show you some pictures because we got to go to Philippi, Mrs. Wilson and I, and um, <clears throat> we went with a master's college trip. You know, they take students on these tours and uh, they're very educational, and if to try to fill it up, they invite people that used to be their alumni to to come and so Laura and I were really old alumni from LA Baptist College days and we got an invitation we said let's go so it was an awesome trip but I want to show you show you some pictures um, the first one is a professional picture actually taken by one of the professors that was on the trip there so that's what Philippi looks today it's a it's a ruin obviously there's not much there but there is Nothing was built on top of it. In some places, modern cities are built over the old cities, but Philippi is just laying out there, so they're doing all kinds of excavations going on there and things like that. That's the first picture. The second picture is, that's a professional picture. The second picture is ours, so then the next pictures are all ones that we took. So this is Philippi. Um, you can see not a whole lot is standing. Um, here's another picture. More ruins, a different perspective. Here's another picture all kinds of cool stuff there it's really great to walk around the next picture you see a couple in a doorway they look kind of familiar but they're wearing all kinds of it was winter when we were there so we're all bundled up we're standing in a doorway of philippi where there's there are no walls by the doorway so the door was obviously better built than the walls they've continued to fall down but the doorway's still there next picture is the theater in philippi beautiful theater very in very good condition uh, most of the roman theaters really last when you go to these places he's a lot of these ruins and the next picture is a student it's one of the master's college students so everywhere we went one of the students would give uh, a me would memorize a portion of scripture so she's memorizing the story of Paul in Philippi and she's telling that story the next picture is the traditional site you can see a little river there that's where the ladies gathered Lyd Lydia and the ladies gathered it is the right river who knows if it's exactly that spot or not um, there's some evidence that maybe that it was but uh, it's there and you notice in the next picture they've, they've set up a place where you can get baptized there in the same little river so it kind of has this beautiful concrete area where people can stand and baptize people and that is the water kind of 
sweeps around through there. So it's a little place to do baptisms and you can see um, a little shrine there and the next picture is the shrine itself and there's a close-up of Lydia's picture um, there in the shrine. So you can tell from the picture of the shrine that there's there's something in there and here's the close-up of that. So that's Lydia. It's got her name there and she's called Saint Lydia. Um, And then the next picture is this building. It's actually a a baptistry. It's called the Baptistry of Saint Lydia. And Lydia was made a saint by the Orthodox Church in Greece in 1972. She had to wait like 2,000 years to become a saint, which is really too bad. But uh, that's how humans define sainthood. But can I tell you a secret? The truth is she became a saint in AD 50, the day her heart was opened by the Lord. That's how she became a saint. Then the next picture is inside that building, the baptistry of uh, Saint Lydia. And the picture you see is on the left is Timothy and in the middle is Paul and on the right is Luke. And you can see Luke has a book in his hand because he's telling the story in the book of Acts, right? So that's a, that's a very classic Greek style um, iconography there, pictures of that. And then the last picture is the gang we traveled with all standing by the, the river there where Lydia was baptized. So it was a great time. It was an awesome trip. That's the right river. Um, Those are kind of old stones there. uh, But I don't know if it's the right place exactly. But it was something like that. So that's the story of Lydia. It's it's a wonderful account of God's grace. And it was just fun to be there and actually see some of those things. Now, let me add this. There's a moment in John's gospel when Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And he's getting a lot of pushback and unbelief from the crowd that's gathered there. And surprisingly, he says this in John chapter 6, verse 44. I'm kind of going back to God's sovereignty and salvation here. He says, no one can come to me. No one's able to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Oh, where's that? That's that Jeremiah prophecy, huh? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. It's a beautiful passage. But he's very clear that it's the Father that does the drawing to himself. Lydia was drawn. Lydia learned from the Father. She believed and eternal life was hers. You know that Jesus doesn't lose people who belong to him. He's faithful to preserve us even if we're kind of foolish sometimes and do a little wandering. He's faithful. A little before that passage I just read in John chapter 6 verse 37 Jesus said all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so it happened with Lydia. Her heart was opened. She received the truth. She was regenerated, washed by the Holy Spirit. 
sealed for the day of her death when she would enter into heaven and have eternal life and she will be resurrected at the end of the age. It's beautiful. I hope you know that, that great truth that, that, that God is gracious and that if you are drawn to Jesus, you're being drawn by the Father. If you've accepted Jesus, you are born again and you will be resurrected in the last day. Well, the story of Paul and his Philippi team is not over yet. Uh, it's just beginning and there's trouble ahead. There always seems to be trouble for that guy. Serious trouble, actually, but also another outpouring of God's saving grace. So we'll look at that next time in Acts 16. Let's pray. Lord, we could never save ourselves. Our sin blinds us, but you, by your grace, by the Holy Spirit, you open our eyes and we see Jesus and all of his glory and the wonderful salvation that he provided through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And we thank you for that. May we never forget, may we keep our eyes on him. We ask in his name, amen. Okay, we'll see you next time.